Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of Vincera, the story of Italia 90. Can you believe we're nearly at the end? You're a trooper for sticking with us this far. Today, well, it's a bit of a case of after the Lord Mayor's show for England and hosts Italy after their penalty shootout heartbreaks in the semi-finals. Whether the prize of third place was actually coveted in the circumstances is debatable, especially for the Italians, but it was a way for both teams to try and give their supporters one last victory to remember Italia 90 by. We'll discuss the game in Bari and have a little look back at the rest of the tournament in the company of a trio of 90s aficionados. Uh, Mike Gibbons of the Nessendorma podcast. Are you well, Mike? Uh, very well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure. Uh, Matthew Christ, the Alive and Kicking podcast. How are you doing, Matthew? Hello. Yep, good to be back. Hope everyone's well. Good. And Simon Hart of this podcast. Um, how are you doing, Simon? Um, yeah, very well. Thanks, Mark. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, okay, well, let's get straight to the game, shall we? Um, the remarkably stylish Stadio San Nicola saw one last bit of action in this half-hearted celebratory night. And although not totally full, there was a very decent, decent atmosphere for these two teams to get over their pangs of penalty regret. It could so easily have been the final, but for those pesky missed spot kicks. Both managers made a few changes from a few days earlier. Notably, Roberto Baggio was recalled by Azelio Vicini, his absence from the starting eleven potentially uh, decisive in Naples. Toto Scalacci was given another chance up front to bag the, the goal that would propel him to the top of the scoring charts on his own, ahead of Czechoslovakia's Thomas Skouravi. For England, Paul Gascoigne was, of course, absent through suspension, and there was no Terry Butcher, who called it a day for England after a decade of epitomising the up-and-atom-style English defender. Coincidentally, in one of those odd football facts that get thrown up on from time to time, Butcher is the cousin of one of our previous guests, Scotland international Pat Nevin. Peter Shilton, criticised after the semi-final, and certainly more so since, played his 125th and final game for England after an incredible 20-year career with the national team, a record to this day. It was also coach Bobby Robson's final game at the helm of what had been an up-and-down eight years as England manager, from the lows of Mexico and Maradona's brilliance and brazenness and of the Euro 88 debacle, to the high of Italia 90 and the glorious failure in Turin, which rejuvenated him for the productive second part of his illustrious coaching career. He was off to Holland for a quieter life, free from the British press hounding him after the FA had all but fired him on the eve of the tournament. Gentlemen, with Graham Taylor replacing Robson as manager and the end of the international careers of Shilton and Butcher and Brian Robson entering the twilight years of his career, the emergence of Gascoigne, David Platt and others, it felt like the end of one era and possibly the start of a bright new one for England's national side. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a quite a tipping point for England this uh, tournament really I mean uh, obviously because the, the you know the result and then what that would eventually lead to and changes in the game and things like that but um, yeah within the squad itself that it it was the end of um, an era for, for so many people involved in it um, you know Bobby Robson had been the manager for eight years he was going and I don't think any England manager has, has done anything close to that uh, that amount of time since then, I think Ericsson did uh, did five years, didn't he? I think that's the um, that's been the longest reign since then. But that, so that that was a huge departure. Uh, Peter Shilton, obviously, he'd been in the team and around the squad for twenty years. Butcher had been in the team for a decade. The same with Brian Robson. So, yeah, it's the the point of the tournament. They they were losing a huge amount of experience uh, once the tournament was over. But the the flip side of that was what the what they they'd actually discovered at the tournament. Um, you know, David Platt 
who came into the squad very late. I don't think he made his debut debut until um, the March of 1990 against Brazil. Had an excellent tournament, scored the three goals, um, came into effectively replaced Brian Robson. You had Paul Parker who come into the team, had a great tournament. It was Des Walker's first tournament. I thought he was he was outstanding at Italia 90. And of course, the big one was um, Paul Gascoigne and the way he played in that tournament. Um, it ended on a very sour note for him, obviously. But the, you know, in the in the what he'd done to get England that far, and how well he played, and in such a illustrious company and against such difficult opposition as well, you, you you really did have hope for the future at that point. Of well, here's a guy that you know England can build its its future around in the 1990s. So it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a point of um, we were we were losing a lot of. Uh, you know, long-standing and uh, you know very highly regarded uh, players, and and the manager obviously. But what Bobby Robson bequeathed to Graham Taylor was, uh, you know, some real uh, some real promise for the future. I think. Yeah, I I was just thinking actually while I was listening to Mike there. It's funny how this tournament's seen as a a huge turning point and a, a, a sort of shining light when it comes to English football, which it was. I mean, we all know it sort of capt- captivated the attention of the nation and and. You know, football was never the same again. If you if you believe people like ourselves, but it it also was almost as well as it was the beginning of an era. It was almost the end of an era as well. Because if you think about it, really, after this game, English football almost sort of went into the doldrums for the next sort of about six years. Really, I mean, obviously, we know what happened at you know, Euro '92, and then there was the failure to qualify at World Cup '94. So, I mean, for all the optimism that we you know we've obviously discussed over the last few weeks and it's a period that we all look back on with great fondness it was actually almost a bit of a uh, a curtain coming down on a on, on a lot of it with um, obviously with the a lot of players never really featuring for England again great names retiring Chilton Robson what have you Gascoigne was never really he wouldn't make the same impact again for some years to come so it was almost as much as it was the beginning of an era it was almost the end of one as well I think which is um, slightly ironic yeah, I mean, on that point, it would, I don't have all the names off the top of my head. It would be interesting to look at the, you know, that very injury-hit England team that did so badly in the, the Euro in Sweden two years later. You know, people like Tony Daly were starting, I think, the, the game they lost against the Swedes. Um, Carlton Palmer was in there. So, you know, as, as, as Matthew said, a completely different England team. Um, obviously not, not, not for... That, that wouldn't have been Graham Taylor's first choice team but it, it, it underlines how fast things can change in football um, I mean Waddle, Waddle was a was always somebody who you know just when we thought we were seeing you know this this brilliant player who'd come of age as an England player maybe belatedly but you know he'd gone to Marseille he was terrific in that semi-final game and you know by the time he was football of the year or player of the year in that, that season Sheffield Wednesday had uh, 92, 93. You know, he he wasn't being picked by by Graham Taylor. So although although we think you know, or, or, you know, it's easy to think th- this was a moment where we saw A, B, and C, and people saw the light. Well, you know, there was Waddle, who was still a great talent, who who wasn't being picked. Um, David Platt is the one really who, for me, stands out. I was just looking this morning. You know, 27 goals and 62 England appearances. And yet, you know, six months before that World Cup, people would have been, probably been thinking David Rocastle would go, or Michael Thomas, or a player like that. So, um, yeah, it's funny how how things change and how they didn't change at the same time in some respects. 
It was a reasonably open attacking game played in good spirit, although both sides tackling demonstrated a competitive edge. There were really only a handful of half chances for both sides in an even first half. Italy, with the extra days rest in their legs, started getting on top close to half-time. A long-range Chiro Ferrara effort tipped onto the post by Shilton was the closest either side came to opening the scoring. In the second half, both sides still probed. Italy created the slightly better openings, but England scrambled hard to keep them out until the 71st minute when Shilton ambled over towards the byline to collect a harmless-looking back pass. What could possibly go wrong for him, Matthew? <laughs> well, everything, I think. I mean, anyone that's seen the goal or remembers at the time, I mean, what a what a comedy of errors. I mean, and again, something that would... Would probably never happen again in a in a World Cup, obviously, because the uh, as we know the back pass rule came in before the uh, the next World Cup in '94. But um, I mean, it was a, it was a sad way really for Schiltz to <clears throat> to bow out. Obviously, he's had a, a glorious career, and as you said earlier, this was his this was his final appearance and a, a moment he should remember. But I mean, in some ways, it was remembered for all the wrong reasons. But I mean, as much as it was Shilton's mistake, I mean, it was a comedy of errors really from the whole England defence I mean there was the, the sort of dodgy back pass in the first place but I mean I don't know why he didn't just pick it up I mean unlike now he you know he, he could have picked it up but he decided to sort of uh, play out from from his almost his six yard line and was dispossessed but even then after that there was still probably a couple of chances to clear the ball before it um, eventually ended up in the net but um, yeah uh, I mean it's, 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 I say it's sad for him to be remembered for this incident but in fairness until I knew we were going to discuss it and um, and I watched it again in, in preparation for this this conversation I'd forgotten actually how how bad it was so maybe yeah maybe he's not remembered as much for it as uh, as we we say is but um, yeah an absolute calamity I mean Shilton was remembered probably for not having the best tournament as much as we uh, wax lyrical about a lot of uh, England's players and, and the squad and the team as a whole playing in that tournament. I mean, Shilton, Shilton was criticised a couple of times um, the game against Germany where he was, uh, sort of the deflection deceived him and, a couple, and, the, and the shootout, I know he's been criticised for being a bit slow off the line. So this, in a way, I think sort of capped almost a bit of a, a disappointing a disappointing tournament, but hopefully it, it won't taint his, his legacy um, you know, to, to this day. But um, certainly a calamitous goal and uh, again I just don't know why and what England were thinking of really. I, I enjoyed watching this goal again um, just because it's not often you can see a player playing a through ball from five yards out to another player who's about two yards off the line. <laughs> um, yeah nice bit of skill wasn't it and very um, they, were, they were quick to pounce on uh, Shilton's error for sure. Yeah I felt a bit sorry for Shilton here actually because um it yeah it's it everyone knew it was going to be his um his last game for him and it was his, I think it's his 125th cap wasn't it yeah um and it was it was only last November actually England played their 1000th international so if you think about that if my maths is correct you know Shilton's played in 12 and a half percent of all England games in history since 1872 and would have played in a lot more but for but for um you know being swapped in and out with Ray Clements so he's an extraordinary um you know figure in the history of english international football i think to have to have that for one man to have that much experience and yeah it's just a horrible horrible way for him um, to go out really actually it probably should have been a penalty because he'd be brought down baggio and baggio nicked the ball off him and then when baggio gets the ball back i'm pretty sure baggio's offside <laughs> in that move but 
um, he goes on to finish. But I, I mean, no one's going to make a big deal of that really because it's you know it's the third and fourth um, uh, playoff game. Uh, you know, it would have been a much a much bigger deal in the, in one of the semi-finals. Given what Mike was telling us there about you know the the incredible number of appearances he made, I've just taken a, a cheeky look at an old Rothmans or I believe Sky Sports yearbook as they're now called. Um, and if you think that Clements played 61 England appearances, you know during the span of of Shilton's England career, he, you know he could have actually, if there was for, for no Clements, you know, or, or but for Clements he could have made you know maybe 180 appearances for England, which is underlines just how long he was around for. Um, the Italians had their tails up now, and England were rattled. Bobby Robson made two attacking substitutions, bringing on Neil Webb and Chris Waddle for Mark Wright and Steve McMahon to try and chase a result. A last gasp intervention by Des Walker stopped another Baggio special, while England fired back with Webb's 25-yarder, which sent Zenga scrambling to his right to get down low and keep it out. Then on 81 minutes, England, as they had done before at Italia 90, pulled themselves level through a now familiar source Simon yeah I mean Tony DiRigo came into the team for this one and um, you know played over a, a lovely cross with that, that left foot of his and, and Platt did what Platt you know had been doing all season long just being in the right place at the right time um, you know he scored 19 league goals that season for Aston Villa uh, picked up the, um, the football of the year award um, or the player of the year one of those two so you know he 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 was just in that incredible incredible run where he just showed that knack, that timing, and you know there he was, great header, good leap, right place, another goal, um, and that that's what you know that I guess the Italians watching that he saw what he could do, and twelve months later he ends up in Bari. Yeah, it's a great header, um, and yeah, another wonderful moment for Platt as well. I mean it's. The way we look back at that tournament, it seems amazing to think really that he didn't actually start for England until the quarter-final against um, against Cameroon, but had had such a, such an impact on that tournament. And I think out of all the players that came out of the tournament, you know, the emerging ones that we've discussed, it's probably David Platt that that cashed in his potential the most for England. I don't think Gascoigne was quite able to do it in in quite the same way you know because of injury and things like that and then yeah t- until you're a 96 really um Eng- england never really uh got that potential out of gascoigne that he showed in italia 90 but platt platt went on from this tournament it was a real springboard for him uh that got him his move to italy and you know he had a, a reasonably successful time while he was there and he was in a in a team um under graham taylor that performed pretty poorly um, in the aftermath of Italia 90 and then didn't qualify for the following World Cup. Um, I don't think any of the blame for that could be could ever be levelled at David Platt because he, he was brilliant for England um, under Graham Taylor. Um, probably their only one world-class um, player who was doing it consistently. Um, his goal-scoring record, which was good in this tournament, and it uh, went on to be um, superb again. I think Simon mentioned earlier he eventually scored 27 goals in 62 games for England. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a classic case, really, of someone going to the World Cup, and it's that carte the end moment from from the moment the Belgian goal went in. You know, Platt really seized his opportunity. He once told me he get, he got home and there were five commercial deals waiting on the table for him, just to, to illustrate, you know, how that transformed his life, really. With the game increasingly stretched, parity didn't last long. Uh, Our guest from episode 22, Paul Parker, 
clobbered Scilacci just inside the box after another incisive run from inside his own half by Roberto Baggio. With the golden boot there for the taking, Toto stepped forward to take the penalty, making it all the more strange why he didn't take one in the semi-final shootout against Argentina. He calmly slotted it home, sending Shilton the wrong way to earn his side third place and the best record of any team not to win a World Cup. It was his sixth goal of Italia 90, deservedly earning him the golden ball for player of the tournament and the golden boot for top goalscorer. It also ensured his name and his famous wide-eyed image will be forever synonymous with the 1990 World Cup. It's a shame, really, that his career didn't take off subsequently. But he'll always have and always be 1990. England didn't go away empty-handed either. Uh, They won the Fair Play Trophy for the best disciplinary record, while Gary Lineker won a FIFA Fair Play Award on his own in 1990 for a career without a single yellow or red card. More importantly than that, perhaps, they won plenty of respect from both at home and abroad at the end of a decade in which English football had achieved pariah status. How much the performance of the England team and the behaviour of its supporters influenced the decision to readmit English clubs into UEFA competition, albeit gradually, is hard to say. But it certainly boosted the game in this country and provided a helpful springboard to what came after in the 1990s Premier League boom. Okay, uh, what a treat it is for us on Vincere to be joined by a man who won a stack of medals as a cultured midfielder with Inter and also played in the World Cup final in 1994. Our special guest, with the aid of commentator Patrick Kendrick, is Nicola Berti. Nicola, how are you? Como estai? Hey, fine, and you? So, uh, what were those four days like between the defeat in Naples and the game in Bari against England for you and your teammates? I imagine there were plenty of regrets and maybe even some tears. Ma lacrime, guarda, dei rimpianti straordinari. Beh, io quel mondiale del 90 avevo anche la maglietta numero 10, immaginatevi voi. Ma la semifinale non la giocai io a Napoli contro Maradona. Era la mia semifinale. Io avevo giocato fino ai quarti di finale, poi avevo preso, avevo preso un cartellino giallo, un secondo cartellino giallo, e sono stato squalificato ai quarti di finale. Uh, plenty of regrets in terms of the 1990 World Cup. I was given the number 10 shirt for that World Cup, believe it or not, but I didn't actually play in the semi-final. That should have been my semi-final. I played the entire campaign right up until the quarter-finals, um, but then I was suspended for the quarter-finals, having picked up a second yellow card. So I played the quarter... I didn't play the quarter-finals. I expected to come back in. They should have picked me for the semi-finals because I was going to come up against the Argentina side with Maradona. Maradona was playing for Napoli at, at that stage and Inter and Napoli were competing um, for the Scudetto. And if Maradona had seen me lining up, he probably would have shit himself. Um, but to, uh, to general surprise, neither myself nor Roberto Baggio were picked for that game, um, which is crazy if you think. I actually think that the uh, head coach Vicini got the team wrong. He picked two left-backs, Diagostini and Paolo Maldini. Uh, Diagostini wasn't a, a, a midfielder by any stretch of the imagination. We were playing in Naples, so technically we should have been playing in front of the home crowd, but it was almost half and half, half Argentina, uh, half Italy. But yeah, that's one of the few cases where I actually have uh, regrets in my life not being involved in, in the semi-final of that World Cup. Well, if we think about playing in front of that Naples crowd, where it was 50-50, uh, Maradona's home, um, do you think that the Italian team were affected negatively by that? And do you think that the pressure became just too much for the Italian players in the semi-final? Okay. 
magari un, uno stadio un po' ostile, un po' contro, ma contro, giochiamo in Italia, nel campionato del mondo in Italia nel 90 perché abbiamo contro Napoli, ma ti rendi conto? Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. I think we should have picked a more attacking lineup um, because we knew that we'd come up against, we knew we'd encounter a slightly hostile crowd in that semifinals in 1990. But, but you realize what I'm saying, the fact that we were playing as the host nation and, uh, and yet we were coming up against a slightly hostile crowd in Naples. It's, it's ridiculous when you think about it. But we should have picked a more attacking side. I think it was a shame because that was a flawless World Cup campaign for us. We played seven matches, we won six, we drew one, um, and then obviously we lost that game in the semi-finals uh, on a penalty shootout. But six victories and one draw. Then obviously we played the third-place playoff against England in Bari at the San Nicola. I scored a, a goal which was crazily disallowed. It would have been the goal to make it 3-1. But I think that that national team might even have been better than the 1982 World Cup winning side. We should have won that tournament. It was absolutely perfect um, for us, that, that campaign. We had a really strong side. Yeah, it's funny that you, you obviously remember very clearly, clearly the, the goal you scored that was at least 10 metres onside. Um, but the game... <laughs> the game against England was actually quite entertaining, uh, played in a good spirit. Um, it, it probably felt a little bit more like a friendly, but it, it could have been the final. Uh, and let's say it had been the final, do you think the, the way the game was played between the two teams would have been very different? Stadio e in un altro spirito, un'altra cosa. Deve essere veramente il sogno vostro e nostro, che sarebbe stato straordinario. L'Italia in Inghilterra in finale del campionato del mondo 90 sarebbe stato veramente fantastico. Cioè, le due squadre, secondo me più fighe, più di cultura, cioè capito del, del, di questo sport, che è straordinario. Uh, it would have been, been a dream come true for Italy and England to play in the final. It would have been a dream come true both for Italy and England uh, to have met in the 1990 World Cup final. Uh, I think it would have been a wonderful match, arguably the two coolest and most cultured teams in our sport. So it was a real shame. Um, but yeah, I remember this third and fourth place playoffs, all the hugs um, and the spirit after the game. There was a, a party atmosphere to it. The tournament had ended, or not quite, but the third place um, bronze medal was up for grabs in that third place playoff. Uh, we were able to win that. Uh, it would have been more important to have won the previous game, but uh, we got the bronze medal. You guys went home with a, with a wooden medal, shall we say. Love you, England. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Nicola, um, the, my colleague here, Simon, he, he tells me that uh, Giuseppe Bergami once complained to him about your uh, cigar smoke wafting into his room ah, from your ah, balcony. Is it true? Yes. Uh, okay. Ho iniziato a fare il sigaro proprio di quell'anno, negli anni 90. Non ho mai più smesso, però il fuoco sigarette non erano pericolosi. That's true. Yes, I actually started smoking cigars that, that very year, 1990, and I've not stopped since. Um, but it's not dangerous. In fact, my, my good friend Paul Ince, who I later played with at Inter, uh, I used to room with him and he would um, smoke Cuban cigars as long as your arm. But uh, yeah, the smoke might bother my roommate a little bit, but I'm a nice guy. I can get away with it. But yeah, I was used to smoking before games. You know. What do you want from me? But uh, 1994, I roomed with Franco Baresi in the United States. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I smoke a cigar before, before a game. That's the way it is. Uh, <laughs> Great. Well, Nicola, it's been a privilege. Mille grazie for taking time to chat grazie with us today. Voi.
Yes, we've still got the final to go, but we thought that this might be the best opportunity to do an Italia 90 review. Some of the best, worst and alternatives that helped make it such a memorable tournament for one reason or another. So, my three guests today and a few from other episodes have responded to the homework I set them. We've got a number of categories to get through today, um, but why not tweet us at Vincerar90, whether you agree, disagree or have a few suggestions of your own for inclusion. Uh, we'd love to debate these with you. Uh, so chaps, are you ready? Yeah. Yep, yeah, crack on. Yeah. yeah. We're going to start with the player of the tournament and Salvatore Scalacci picked this one up to go with his top scorer's award, which is fair enough, I suppose. Uh, and it certainly appeased the Italians. Um, but who would you three have chosen? Mike, I'm going to come to you first. Yeah, well, this um, this might not be too popular a choice, but um, I've gone for Diego Maradona. Ooh. And, yeah, um, <laughs> I thought we might get that reaction. Um, and the reason I say this is, I, mean, I think I think he might come up um, a bit later on, as you know, with, when we discuss um, disappointments in the tournament. But um, for me, uh, Italia ninety, I think, is a huge part of Maradona's um, makeup and part of his story. And I, yeah, I will concede that he he wasn't as brilliant as he was four years earlier in Mexico. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone ever could be. But what he did to get Argentina to that final and that close to actually winning the tournament, I, th- I think, tells you a lot about what a force of nature uh, Maradona is. Because that Argentina team, they should have been nowhere near that final at all. I mean, but but for Maradona's handball against the USSR, I mean, they, they could very easily have gone out in the first round but Argentina's two big victories in that tournament against Brazil and against Italy in the semi-final I mean Maradona is at the heart of both of those the goal that he sets up for Canidia against Brazil is one of the moments of the tournament for me it's one of it's that was such a high pressure game you know those two teams uh, playing each other at that stage of the World Cup and Brazil generally battered Argentina in general play and then one burst of brilliance from Maradona uh, where, the, where the entire Brazil defence just panicked as he came at them and left Canija completely free it's, it just I find that such a mesmerising moment to see how Brazil's defence which hadn't conceded a goal until that point or oh, had conceded one I think against Sweden but they'd looked really strong at the back and their defence just fell apart when Maradona uh, made that run at them and then in the the semi-final, uh, Maradona basically sacrificed his relationship with Italy as a nation uh, to get to get Argentina, you know, through that game. He basically called it on, and you know, his quotes about um, you know how Naples is uh, is regarded in the rest of Italy and that kind of thing. And then he took what was effectively the winning penalty as well, put it past Zenga, just sat him down after missing one four days earlier against Yugoslavia. And then ran off celebrating like the shootout had ended there. It's, it's. Um, I, I know he's not the most popular figure from this tournament for a lot of people, but I just think, as a, as a captain and a, as a driving force, I just I thought he was exceptional for Argentina. And he was he was virtually playing on one foot as well. He'd injured his ankle really badly. He didn't really have many great attacking players he could combine with in general play. Uh, like he'd had Valdano and Borussia at 86 but he's, he's only really playing with um, uh, Canidia um, at Italia 90 in an attacking sense so yeah to get Argentina so close to winning the tournament um, when, they, when they just should have been nowhere near it at all I, th- I think 
that owes everything to uh, Maradona. So I would uh, I would pick him as my alternative uh, player of the tournament. And Matthew, who's your nomination? Well, no prizes, I guess, in my choice. It's going to be uh, Lothar Mateus. Um, not for any great sort of uh, storyline like uh, with Maradona, but um, just purely because I loved him as a as a player. Like I like I mentioned with Platt, he was the ultimate sort of box to box surging midfielder. Um, and I just think he, he blossomed in this German team that um, that obviously went on and ultimately won the competition. But I just I just love players that played that way. I mean, I was obviously a huge Brian Robson fan, and, and Robson in his in his peak was it was a similar sort of player that could pick up the ball on the edge of his own box, surge forward, turn defence into attack, could shoot from distance, could beat players, could create. And um, I just love the way Mateus um, sort of just just really rose to prominence in this this world cup i mean i know he was uh, it was no great surprise because we all knew he was a fantastic player but um from a personal point of view it, it would be mateus and um and um yeah that's that's it's, it's as simple as that really and simon who are you going to make a case for i think matthew has given the logical answer um and there's a little part of me that would want to say paul gascoigne um certainly from an england perspective but I, I'm going to go with Mike. Sorry, if sorry to sort of duplicate um, somebody else here, but um, at the time, age 17, watching Italia 90, you know, Maradona was the villain. And, you know, even I think if you look back at the BBC and ITV commentaries, you know, there, there was still so much ill feeling towards him from what happened with the Hand of God goal. Um, but, you know, just looking back now... Um, I watched recently the um, the Cameroon game with with Howard Webb. We sort of set up this this Zoom chat and we we, we sat watching it together. And um, he was just you know he noted how Maradona took all this punishment and you know th- there were none of the histrionics or you know jumping up you know holding imaginary flags sorry flags <laughs> imaginary cards that the players do today. He, he just got up, carried on playing his football. Um, and th- that was just the first day of that tournament and you think not just the physical punishment he took but this whole psychological thing of being the number one enemy the hate figure of that tournament um, I, don't, I don't know if any other World Cup has had such a, uh, a target for hostility as, as Maradona was in Italy um, and you know watching the Asif Kapadia film sort of really brings that home um, I spoke to the FIFA media officer who was working at the game in Naples um, and he, he described Maradona afterwards refusing to go to to speak to the press because basically he was in tears he was um, he said he'd been kicked everywhere he was bleeding he was blue and you know we at the time I don't think any of us appreciated that um, whereas now we can and so for that reason and for what Mike's already said about you know his contribution as the sort of the orchestrator of that that limited Argentina team, I would go with him as well. Well, it's a tough one to call this, isn't it? Uh, we obviously Scalacci won it. Uh, you've all made good um, cases for Mateus Maradona. You can throw in Gascoigne in there too. Uh, possibly Roger Miller, certainly for the romantic aspect. Um, so yeah, they're the obvious contenders. Uh, I'm going to throw in one from uh, Jonathan O'Brien, who like me. Uh, can't heap enough praise on West Germany defender Guido Buchwald for his performances during Italian 90. Uh, Trevor Francis, in his co-commentary, called him probably the least talented player in the West Germany team right before he set up Klinsmann's goal against Holland. Um, He was solid at the back, responsible for eliminating 
Diogo Maradona completely from the final uh, and brilliant at turning defence into attack. So he's definitely my choice, if, if not for the main prize, certainly for the unsung hero of Italia 90. Well, next up, it's the alternative goal of the tournament award. Uh, so we're going to leave aside Roberto Baggio's mesmerising effort against Czechoslovakia. And Matthew, I'll come to you to give us your alternative in that category. Well, surprise, surprise. Guess who I've chosen? <laughs> um, I, I promise this will probably, yeah, I think this will be the last time I mention him on this uh, in this conversation. But I'm going to go for Lothar Mateus. Surprise, surprise. Um I chose it basically because it sums up everything that I've just waxed lyrical about the guy a few minutes ago, just his ability to turn defence into attack. And um, yeah, again, the beautiful bit of, of classic Mateus play, picking up the ball just inside his own half or on the halfway line, beating a couple of players, surging forward and then driving a shot right into the bottom left-hand corner as he looks at it. Um, unsavable from a goalkeeper's point of view, but um, maybe not one that a lot of people will remember although I'm sure we will because we're sort of a bit geeky when it comes to memories like that but um, not as maybe as romantic as the Baggio uh, goal um, against Czechoslovakia sorry this was against Yugoslavia sorry the Baggio one against Czechoslovakia but um, yeah this the, the, the uh, Mateus one against uh, Yugoslavia for me was uh, again a bit like the Platt goal in the uh, third and fourth playoff it just epitomised what the guy could do and um, just a different facets of his of his game really you know he, he could shoot he could tackle he could beat players he could pass on this occasion he chose to go himself I mean it was one of the best one of the best solo goals I've seen ever really and in, uh, in this tournament it's that's why it shines out for me purely because it's just just it, and it it summed up that German team as well you know they were sometimes they were criticized for being a bit ugly and playing and being a bit direct and and you know I think for, in terms of World Cup winners of years gone by they might not be seen as everybody's favourites but um, when they turned it on with players like Mateus doing things like this it's uh, it was a, a joy to joy to watch so that's my my choice and uh, like I say I don't think Mateus gets another mention but uh, what a way to go out hmm. uh, and Simon which goal tickled your fancy well I, I prepared my answer here as a, as the Canadian goal against against Brazil um, Mike's already sort of described it beautifully um, in terms of you know Maradona's run the frozen Brazilian defense the killer pass and Canija's finish um, Maradona had said that Canija would be the revelation of the World Cup he was unhappy when Canija didn't start the opening game and Maradona teed up various other players like Balbo who didn't take their chances and you know Canija rewarded that that faith um, which Maradona had had you know showed him had invested in him with that finish um, obviously there's a little part of me or a big part of me my heart says Platt's goal um, which was you know an, an incredible finish incredible drama just beautifully timed um, so can I give two answers not really um, probably <laughs> Kinesia just about fair enough uh, and Mike who are you going to offer forward uh, I've gone for Dragan Stajkovic um, with his goal against Spain, his first goal against um, Spain in the second round game. Um, what I love about this goal is it's it's just so so classy. I mean, there, there are a lot of great number tens and you know attacking midfielders in this tournament, I think, and Dragan uh, Stajkovic is one of those. And it, it reminds me a bit of um, the way he takes the first touch and to, to get Vasquez out of the way it's that old um, quote about Billy Wright when um, he's trying to 
dispossessed Ferenc Puskas at Wembley in 1953 and Puskas drags the ball back and just lets Wright uh, slide by him and I think uh, it's Jeffrey Green's quote isn't it that um, Wright was a fire engine going in the wrong direction of the blaze and that's exactly what um, what Vasquez was he just almost slides completely off the screen as uh, Stoikovic just takes that first touch where he fakes the shoot and just um, kills it perfectly um, and yeah then another little touch to set himself and then he just tucks it in the corner so it's yeah it's a really economical three touch uh, finish and it's from quite close range but it's just it's just dripping with such um, such class I think and he was he was um, he was excellent I think in that tournament Dragon Stoikovic um, and, and there was as I say there were so many good number 10s and attacking midfielders in that tournament that I often think he doesn't maybe get mentioned as much as he should um, when people uh, look back and talk about Italian 90 but um, that that was definitely the moment for him and that would be my alternative goal with the tournament Great choices, uh, I'm just going to throw in a bit of a left field one here and I'm going to go for um, Juan Bo Quan's, uh stunning uh, 114 kilometre per hour belter against Spain in the group stages, that was an absolute cracking goal and certainly one of the, the forgotten uh, classics of Italian 90 now for the potentially contentious alternative team of the tournament category. Uh, the team that FIFA selected was in a 3-4-3 formation, none of the 4-4-2 here, uh, and looked like this. Um, strangely, uh, Goikachea and Luis Canejo were chosen in goal. They couldn't separate them. The back three was Bremer, Maldini and Baresi. Uh, the midfield was Maradona, Mateus, Stojkovic and Gascoigne. Uh, and up front was Klinsmann, Miller and Scalacci. Mike... Let's have your totally alternative 11 to that, please. Uh, yes, so I'll, I'll preface this with an apology because I think I may be slightly misunderstood what you asked me for. So I, I picked an entirely alternative team. Well, no, that's, a, that's um, perfect. Go with it. Um, from the one that was picked. So, yeah, from the uh, quite bizarre 3-4-3, I think, that, um, that was uh, officially put forward, I went with um, Walter Zenger in goal, um, you know, that that sort of that brilliant run of clean sheets um, up till the semi-final. Uh, I've gone four-four-two here, so the back four would be um, Giuseppe Bergami, uh, Des Walker. I mentioned before, I think had a fantastic tournament. Uh, Guido Buchwald. I mean, I'm amazed he's not in that first eleven. To be honest, I, again, I thought he had a superb tournament, and I've gone for uh, Branco at, um, at left back because um, I thought he was a you know, excellent attacking left back in that uh, Brazil team was that actually started a lot of the um, attacking uh, sort of moves for Brazil and, and played a great assist to Kareka in the uh, in their opening game against Swede for him to score um, across the middle I've got for wide players uh, I went with Chris Waddle um, I thought he's br- I thought he's brilliant at Italian 90 I was shadowed a, a little bit by um, Paul Gascon I think but um, yeah he was fantastic and uh, Roberto Donadoni on the other side um, central midfield I've got the uh, Cyril Makinakis kind of the holding player I just thought he was just such a, a driving force of that um, that Cameroon team and for the attacking midfielder I've gone for Michel uh, of Spain who scored four of um, Spain's five goals in the tournament and and his hat-trick against South Korea I think is probably one of the most underrated hat-tricks of all time. I mean, I think the, the quality of all three strikes is just uh, amazing. I mean, maybe it's sometimes not mentioned because it, it's it's in the opening sort of group phase of uh, 
the World Cup. But all, yeah, all three of those uh, goals he scored were brilliant. And then um, up front, I've gone for Rudy Voa. I think is one of the unluckiest forwards in this tournament. In the you know, there's no way he should have been sent off then. <laughs> against the Netherlands I thought that was outrageous and you know if you get sent off at that stage of a World Cup you might not um, you might not get back in the side um, if, it's, if a team keeps winning and progressing to the final but he did and you know he, he went on to win the penalty um, that would win the World Cup for West Germany uh, I think he scored three goals in the tournament as well and yeah up front I partnered him with um, Kinesia who was um, one of the more joyous sights uh, in the Argentina team from this World Cup, I think, uh, particularly on the break. I mean, he was so quick, um, and he left that you know kind of comet trail of blonde hair uh, flowing behind him when he was um, flying away from the defenders. I mean, well, until he ran into Benjamin Massing and uh, you know, got clobbered. So yeah, yeah, that would be uh, that would be my, my uh, alternative eleven from the one that was um, actually put forward. Well, some cracking choices there. And we're going to hear a few of those names in a little while. But first, Matthew, uh, what's your team? It's not a total, uh, totally alternate 11, but you have ignored Roger Miller and his fairy tale. So who have you selected? Yeah, I'm not sure whether I'm going to blame the fact that I misunderstood the question or I just sort of um, just wanted to include some of the players that were actually already in the team so um one bit particular which uh, i think you can guess but um yeah in goal I, my sort of wild card i've gone for luis cabello caneo the uh costa rican goalkeeper purely because i just fancied him as a bit of a fairy tale player really i mean zenga would have probably been the, the oh you know the sort of first choice because of his um his clean sheet record as, as mike mentioned there but i just thought this, this guy was a bit of a an un- unsung hero and a bit of an unsung side really obviously kept a clean sheet against Scotland in their first ever World Cup victory, which was a you know, huge shock at the time. Uh, played a blinder against Brazil, only to be beaten by a deflected effort. Um, and uh, he was actually named keeper of the tournament by France football. So, you know, a bit of a left field choice, but um, I think the only one really in, in my team. Um, in front of him, I've gone for a defence of Bremer, Maldini, Mark Wright and Baresi. Um I think a pretty solid defensive line there um, Wright sort of excelled in my opinion as the tournament went on you know, his ability to play a sweeper or a centre back or sort of you know, bring ball out of defence that sort of that era of the ball playing defender um, so he he uh, made it into my defence and in midfield I've gone Mateus funnily enough I broke my promise I've mentioned him again um, Stojkovic Gascoigne and Michel and uh, Obviously, a very attacking midfield pair in there of uh, Michelle and Gascoigne. Um, again, Mike did a lot of my work for me there by explaining why I picked him. Again, that dazzling hat-trick that he scored that we've uh, discussed in a, a previous uh, previous show. But um, and, and I think another slightly unsung player in this tournament, if I dare say, of a of Spain team that sort of disappointed somewhat, as they tended to uh, back then. Um and then a forward line of Baggio and, and Scuravi. So um, a bit of a gung-ho sort of midfield and attack for me, um, which isn't surprising because I, I do like players that pick the ball up and bomb forward, as I've, uh, as I've just, just described. But um, I, think, I think it was just a, a case of, of picking the players that excited me as a young, as a 14-year-old watching this tournament. And um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose Roger Miller would have been the fairy, fairy story, but... Um, I'm sure he would have definitely found a place on the bench in my team, but um, was just uh, just forced out 
probably for uh, probably for Skouravi. Um But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's my eleven. Um, well, it's certainly interesting that you've got such an attacking team, given that Italia 90 is always criticised for being a very negative in defensive tournament. And, and Mike's too, yours is quite an attacking team, so that's interesting. Um, Simon, you've come up with a totally different angle on this, uh, and you've given us an unfortunate 11. So see what you think about this, listeners. Uh, Simon, tell us your team. Yeah, um, unfortunate in the sense they either suffered injury or some other form of misfortune or in the case of Gaza just ended up in, in you know floods of tears um, I started with the Argentina goalie Pumpy though who made the, the costly mistake for Cameroon's winning goal in the opening game and then broke his leg in a collision in the second game and missed the rest of the tournament um, <laughs> and, Shilton, goalie and, and yeah. Shilton thinks he had it bad <laughs> exactly <laughs> Um, it's a three-four-three. By the way, following the uh, the FIFA 1990 template, um, back three of uh, Rijkaard, who obviously um, he was had an unhappy tournament too. Um, <clears throat> I think he was a bit miffed that uh, Rod Hullet was given the captaincy and got to play in midfield when Rijkaard had played in midfield in the European Cup final a few weeks earlier, but was now playing in defence under uh, Bean Hacker, and obviously then spat on. Voller and got sent off and you know um, blemished his reputation really with that image which everybody still remembers today um, Hadza Begic the, um, the Yugoslavia centre-back whose penalty was saved by um, Gojka Cea, the Argentina goalie and which um, cost Yugoslavia a semi-final place uh, is the, the uh, one of the other defenders in there along with Murder McLeod He's in there because he got knocked out by a Branco free kick. Um, and he sort of spent about two minutes wandering around the pitch, not knowing where he was, um, when Scotland played against uh, Brazil. Um, midfield, Gaz is in there just because of the tears. Brian Robson's in there because of dropping a bed on his toe uh, in the England camp and missing... Well, I know he had an Achilles injury too, which cost him to, to ultimately go home early for the second World Cup running. Um, very unfortunate, you know, for the England captain. Um, Timofte, the um, Romanian midfielder, is in there because again he was another um, victim, as it were, of, of a penalty shootout defeat. You know, he, he, Paki Bonner saved his spot kick in Genoa when the very talented Romanian team lost to the Irish. Um, I think he ended up with the bar, um, running a bar called the penalty shootout or something, or something, you know, some <laughs> kind of. Uh, something to do with his his misfortune in Italy um, all those years ago. Um, and Donadoni, um, who uh, Mike's um, mentioned, you know, had a, I think it was Mike um, in his team, um, you know, very talented player, had a very good World Cup, but was one of those two Italian players who who didn't score from the their spot kicks in, in Naples and, 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 you know, cost their country. Um, Mike... Three attackers it begins with Aldo Serena again. He he was the ultimate fall guy. You know he, I spoke to him about his penalty um, in Naples and about how he how he how he was walking to, you know from from the centre circle to the um to to the penalty box to to take his kick. He just felt that these kind of walls closing in on him and his legs were turning to turning to jelly, um, and he ended up. Uh, going on holiday in Bora Bora after that because he couldn't think of anywhere further away um, than Italy um, and I had a bit of a soft spot for him because he told me that he was um, 
he had sideburns in that World Cup because he was a McShannon fan. So there can't be too many Italian World Cup players who've tried to emulate McShannon. Um, so, you know, that's another reason to have him in there. Chris Waddle, of course, for his penalty miss, and Kanija, um, really just because, you know, he he was such he had such a, an impactful World Cup and ended up missing it the final because of he was suspended. So but players who even if they had great World Cups like Gascoigne or Kanija, you know, ended up ultimately missing out for some reason or another. So we move on to the best team performance award. Uh, Mike, give us your uh, recommendation for this one, please. Uh, well, I've gone for um, West Germany beating Yugoslavia um, 4-1 in their opening game. I just think it was such a statement of intent from uh, West Germany to win that game like that. And the, the team that they beat, uh, Yugoslavia, they, they were within penalty kicks of getting to the semi-finals themselves and were really one of the coming teams in Europe. Um and you know it was the you know the the tragedy of the Yugoslav wars meant that um, obviously that that potential was uh, was never realised. But uh, yeah, they were they were just devastating in this game. Uh, the Germans, the first the first three goals they score are all just fantastic. I've got a, I very nearly picked it as goal with my alternative goal of the tournament actually was Quinsman's diving header um, at the front post from that frame across and you had uh, you know those two fantastic goals from Mateus as well and I think it's, it's kind of one of the earliest examples of what people refer to now as a power team you know where it's 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 all very dynamic and athletic and you have that athleticism from players in in every position on the pitch and uh, particularly from uh, you know your fullbacks um, that get forward as well I, just, I, I remember I remember watching that uh, game or maybe seeing the highlights of it because I think maybe it wasn't one of the ones that was initially shown live and it was just it was it really was a terrifying performance at the start of the tournament uh you know that West Germany would put that marker down to say well this is the standard this is what you're going to have to be um they, they were just brilliant in that opening game and I, I don't think I saw a better performance by a team in the whole in the whole tournament Matthew whose hat are you going to throw in the ring for this one well Another surprise for you. Um, I actually was going to go with this, uh, the game that Mike just talked about, actually, the uh, Germany game. I mean, you would never guess I had West Germany in the sweepstake for this tournament, the way I, <laughs> I go on about them. But, um, you have, to declare, the you have to declare all financial interests. You know that, don't well, you? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I won about 35 quid, for which for a 14-year-old, you know, kept me in football stickers and what have you for, for quite some time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, did, I, I mentioned earlier on how much I love this West Germany team because of that sort of power and that attacking prowess. And the Yugoslavia game was that statement of intent. And it was, you know, that sort of terrifying attacking ability against a team that were really pretty decent. You know, Yugoslavia were one of those sort of teams that always looked upon as being a bit of a, a dark horse. I think the same was, you know, as there always is in a, in a World Cup. But um, And then for the same reason, I chose their demolition of the United Arab Emirates, um, 5-1. I, I know... Um, they were the sort of whipping boys of the tournament but I mean quite often these whipping boys can throw up a, a bit of a surprise yeah I mean look at Cameroon in the opening game look at Costa Rica Scotland so there's always that that um, possibility of a shock and and also these teams can quite often sort of stick everyone behind the ball and frustrate their opponents and, and these games can sometimes be a bit of a, a disappointing affair I remember France, Canada in the '86 World Cup, where it was the same thing, and, they, and Canada were only broken down by a sort of late Papin goal. So it's quite often they're not what they promise to be. But this German demolition of uh, the United Arab Emirates was just was basically thing that Mike's just described, but 
but but on uh, on acid really because they were just running riot. I mean, they absolutely peppered their opponents. I think the only pet blemish really was that they conceded a, a goal from a, a bit of a defensive mistake with the ball bouncing up over the over the back four. But other than that, it was um, it was just a real powerhouse of a performance and to. Uh, and to, to really lay a marker down like that, whereas, you know, they, some teams might have got one or two nil up and uh, taken a few players off and, and settled for uh, settled for the win. But to um, to go out there and get five, and it could have easily been seven or eight, nine, ten, uh, was 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 fantastic. And again, as a, a youngish kid watching it, uh, it was just a, a spectacle to see these, these players firing shots in from every angle. Crosses were coming in left, right and centre. And again, in a tournament that is often derided for its negativity. This was a something of a gung-ho performance. So it's not anything tactical. It's not anything intellectual. It was just purely, a, I chose this one just because I love I love the game. And I watched the highlights back and it was, as I remember, a sort of a real blockbuster performance. So um, um, sentimental reasons, but, um, but, you know, not without, um, not without reason, obviously, because to win, to win 5-1 in a World Cup game is not, yeah, you don't see that very often, so um, that's my that's my choice. And Simon, uh, which team performance um, have you chosen? Um, well, sorry, I've got to um, to echo Mike again. Um, West Germany, Yugoslavia, selected largely for academic reasons. Uh, they did win the World Cup, and this was considered their best performance. Um, I once discussed this game with Martin Tyler, and he said that um, it's the only time he's ever turned around and said to people at the end of the game you know this team are going to win the world cup um and yeah and they did so um yeah i'm with mike on this Mm. well i think it is hard to get away from west germany's win over yugoslavia um i'll chuck in england's displays against holland or west germany for their surprise element if nothing else Uh, and um another one from come came in from jonathan o'brien who nominated uh, romania's win over the ussr um, they they held out well initially against a very strong opponent, then nicked a goal at just the right time, and and in the end they might have won by five and six. So uh, yeah, that's a bit of an alternative choice there. Well, that's the best team performance award covered. Uh, what about the best performance by an individual, Matthew? Uh, my best individual performance uh, would be uh, Michelle scoring the hat trick against South Korea. We've uh, we mentioned it uh, earlier on in this this discussion I think Mike mentioned it and um, I think we, we spoke about it on a previous a previous episode of uh, Vincerar but um, I just thought it was it, it was almost the perfect hat trick I know they say the perfect hat trick is a left foot right foot and a header but I mean this this had everything really um, again you could say it was against a weaker opposition that South Korea were back then they weren't the sort of force that they went on to become sort of 10-12 years later but um, but I just thought it was a, a a pivotal moment really for a, a player who somewhat went under the radar I mean that Spain were one of those teams back then that always a lot was always expected of them and they yeah without doubt always failed or disappointed so this was sort of a the highlight really of a of a tournament that was largely forgotten but um but a, a phenomenal hat-trick from a phenomenal player um and again we say about the, the negativity of this tournament and then quite often now you know the, the goals weren't weren't flying in and uh, you know it was remembered for a lot of negativity but um, for me this game if you watch the highlights it, um, it it was a real breath of fresh air and uh, again a player who possibly didn't go on to to uh, fulfil the potential that he could have done but I mean having looking back at this uh, this game and these 
these goals, uh, you would uh, you, you'd be forgiven to thinking that he, you know, you wonder why he didn't go on to become a, the, the world beater that I think he could have been. But um, but for this moment in time, certainly I'm going to go for the, the Michelle hat trick against our career. Good choice, uh, Simon. Follow that, please. Um, you might be getting the impression here that I'm quite indecisive and uh, I, I'm going to give you two suggestions here one, one would be Stojkovic against um, Spain you know, he'd, he'd, he was the, the star man for the Yugoslavia team they, they were a Yugoslavia team with so much conflict swirling around them you know, Ozim had been you know, accused of being a drunk by some of the, the papers um, back in um, Yugoslavia, uh, the coach, um, and he hadn't yet delivered a big performance. Stojkovic, um, he was the 5.5 million player. You know, Bernard Tappy had signed him for Marseille, and and this was the day he delivered. And two very different goals. That you know, beautiful, you know, bit of footwork to, to uh, which Mike you know described earlier, which sent Martin Vasquez the wrong way, and then this free kick he scored to win the game in extra time. Um, so that, looking back, I would say that was the performance at the time for me. It was Waddle in the semi-final, um, an England player, you know, trying to shot from the halfway line. The, just the way he played in that first half, floating around, nearly won it in extra time with a shot against the post. Um, everyone remembers the miss, but you know what? What a performance he had in in Turin um, before then. Great choices. Uh, Emanuele Giulianelli th- uh, threw forward that uh, Dragan Stojkovic performance against Spain because um, he was, as you say, he was a player right at the top of his game, proving exactly what a star he was at the time. Mike, uh, round off this category, please, uh, and let us know who you think gave the best individual performance. Well, I've gone for Paul Gascoigne um, against the, the Netherlands in the first round. Um, and it was part of uh, a quite extraordinary performance from England, really, in that you know Bobby Robson s- suddenly switched to the sweeper system in the middle of the tournament, having you know not really tried it uh, before, and against the European champions, you know against Van Basten and Hoyt, Rijkaard and Koeman and all these uh, these great players. And uh, okay, the game ended in a nil-nil draw, so there was no goal or assist or anything like that from Gascoigne. But I just think the way the way he played in that game, the way he kind of took it over with the, with the force of his sort of personality and his skill given who was on the pitch with him um, not just not just in the Dutch team but you know in, in the England team as well I thought that was the real coming of age moment for him in the tournament there's a beautiful uh, point in the first half where he gets the ball in the centre circle and he's got Ronald Koeman in front of him and he just runs directly at him stands him up and goes past him like he doesn't even exist and the Dutch eventually bring him down on the edge of the area to, to give England a free kick and the camera cuts to the England bench and Bobby Robson he just he cannot keep the the grin off his face he's looking back at his coaching staff and it's as if he's saying oh you know we've really got one here kind of thing and then in the in the second half uh, it, Gascoigne beats Koeman again but with uh, a cry turn almost like, you know, selling the Dutch invention back to them and they're putting a lovely cross to the back post that Lineker just misses. And there's lots of stories that have come out about uh, Gascoigne in that game. There's things, I don't know how apocryphal they are, but, you know, he asked um, Van Basten how much he earned after, you know, Van Van Basten played a really nice pass. Um, But it was just, I think that was the moment for him where he arrived in the tournament because I just thought he was... um, fantastic in that game and surrounded by all those 
world-class uh, you know, players, particularly on the Dutch team, to take that game over and be the best player on the pitch. It was a kind of glimpse of something we, we never quite got to realise with England, I think, like just how good Gascoigne could be. But within that game, um, we saw how good uh, he was because I, I, just, I just thought he was fantastic in that game. Well, there are a couple of frontrunners in our coach of the tournament category. Bobby Robson of England and Bora Milutinovic of Costa Rica. So tell us who you've gone for and why, Simon. Um, I've gone for Bora. Um, he he only took over Costa Rica in February of 1990. Um, this was a team with, with some part-timers still. Um, they'd never been to a World Cup. Um, he took them into the forests, had them training, had them watching the Rocky films. Um and got them to Italy before any other team. Um, and, you know, we talk about fairy stories, and, and Cameroon is, is, I guess, the ultimate fairy story from Italian IT, but Costa Rica's story, you know, is almost as, um, you know, impactful, really, um, when you think that, um, you know, they when, when they went to play Wales before the World Cup, um, they were swapping shirts afterwards, and... Uh, one of the officials ran on the pitch and said, you know, you, we don't have enough kit, you can't do this. So this gives you a little example of the, the limitations they had. Um, and yet Bora got them organised. Um, and this wasn't Costa Rica playing a World Cup in South America or North America. You know, they're playing a World Cup in Europe and they beat two European teams, Scotland and Sweden. So to do that in their first tournament, I think I think that's possibly, you know, Bora's uh, greatest achievement as a coach. Mike, who have you chosen? Uh, yeah, I've gone for Bora as well. Uh, yeah, I concur completely with everything Simon said there. And I, I wanted to include um, something about Costa Rica because I I do agree that what what they did was maybe slightly overshadowed a little bit by Cameroon as, you know, being uh, the great underdog story of the uh, of the tournament, really. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's looking back at it now, you know, that after an hour against Czechos in the second rounds, they were... They were level at one all. You know, there was still a glimpse of the quarterfinals for them at that point. And to be in that position after, you know, how they'd been pretty much dismissed by, you know, the world media and a lot of teams in the competition before it kicked off. I remember when um, when Wales beat Costa Rica in the uh, in the game that uh, Simon mentioned, the friendly game just before the World Cup. I think it was the daily record in uh, Scotland that published the headline, Warning, Costa Rica Beatable. Which is, you know, like a, re- a reference to um, Scotland's history of, you know, like losing games where they were expected to win. But I don't think anyone in Scotland um, ex- expected that they that they could possibly lose that opening game. And you know, and there was no there was no real fluke element to that either. I mean, they they played really well in that game, Costa Rica, and then went on to beat Sweden as well. You know, they, and they only lost one 0 to Brazil. And yeah, as, as I mentioned, you know, with an with an hour gone in the in the second round. They were still very much in that game and in with a chance of um, of getting to the quarterfinal before uh, before Scarabi and uh, his teammates took it away from them. Um, and I think of all the things that Bora Milutinovic has done at a World Cup, and he's a, he's a very iconic and legendary figure in the World Cup. Um, you know, for all the all the different teams he's managed within it, I just this achievement, I think, um, given. You know, resources, expectancy, everything. You know, the group they drew. When you weigh it all together, I just think um, it, what he did for Costa Rica was uh, amazing, really. And Matthew, who have you chosen? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult one because there were quite a few fairy tale stories. I mean, Bora at Costa Rica obviously crossed my mind. Um, the Egypt manager, Mohamed El Ghori, you know, I mean, don't forget Egypt were a part time outfit essentially and got within, you know, going into that final game with England, you know, they were still in with a chance of, uh, of, of progressing. Uh, Cameroon, obviously, but I've gone with a slightly more predictable choice and I have gone with. Bobby Robson, um, purely for the backstory, really. I mean, obviously, any, anyone you know that remembers this World Cup will remember the the sort of grief that he had got um, at the ACA European Championships from the press. I mean, he was still he got quite a lot of grief, you know, leading up to that, and then after that, yeah, the, the papers were sort of begging for his, his sacking, and it did get unsavoury and nasty, as we all know. So, for what Bobby Robson did in this World Cup, I think it was almost a sort of it it it, it gave him the uh, respectability that he deserved for his, his career as a club manager and as a an international manager. I think if England hadn't progressed and they hadn't got the credit for uh, um, for what what they did in this tournament, I think it would have it would have all ended on a bit of a savoury note because by we all knew that Bobby Robinson was leaving at the end of this tournament or at the conclusion of this tournament. So this was his his sort of swan song, and um, you know it, it could have it could have ended so differently. I mean, if they had gone out with a whimper, I mean, there would have been something of a cloud hanging over his um, his career, I think. So for him to adapt the way he did, and we all know that England didn't get off to the greatest start, greatest of starts in this tournament. They were pretty slow in the group stages, and they, they sort of fumbled their way through. But to go out on the high that they did, and for him to, you know, his ability as a man-manager to, to get the play, best out of players like Gascoigne and uh, and, and to make the changes like he did, uh, reverting to the sweeper system and adapting. I mean, I think it just showed the, the quality of the man as a manager, which I, I still don't think he really gets it, even in the even in the club game, you know, with what he achieved. Um, so again, a bit of a sentimental choice, but um, that, that's why I picked Bobby Robson purely because I think it just gave him the credibility that he, uh, he he deserves so much, and we can all look back now on these on this, this his career, and, and and the highlight is obviously. Uh, the, the World Cup in, uh, in 1990. Well, now it's the best story of Italia 90 category. And uh, this group of lads from Africa might have been 500 to 1 with the bookies before Italia 90 to, to win the tournament. But uh, I imagine that they would be long odds on favourites uh, to win this particular section. Uh, Mike, have you picked Cameroon? Uh, I have yes, and uh, I'll try not to talk too much about them if, uh, if we've if we've all if we all picked them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I just couldn't see how it could be anything else really. I mean, right from the right from the opening game, which is still for me the biggest upset I've ever seen at a World Cup, uh, just in terms of you know they're playing the world champions and. The expectations beforehand as well, not just mine, but you know the, the way they've been played down um, in the media. I mean, uh, for years uh, it had been talked about that. I think it was Walter Winterbottom who first made the quote in 1962 that uh, before the end of the 20th century, um, an African team will win the World Cup. And then I think I think Pele said it uh, later on after that. So there was there was always a kind of thought maybe that, that at one tournament um, there will be an emergence of uh, a you know, a really great African team, and and this was it, and uh, it was sensational what they did. I mean, and they got us to add some brilliant players. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll cover the you know the story of Roger Miller. I mean, what what a fantastic World Cup story that is to come back at that age, and and to be that effective. You know, that Eugene Akeke, who I thought had a great tournament as well. Um, Makanaki, who I put in my team, 
who's just this real box-to-box attacking midfielder. I know actually I, I put him into my um, team of the tournament as uh, in the kind of defensive role, but he's going to have to work with Michel in the way that Lampard and Gerrard should have worked together. But um, yeah, he de- definitely uh, deserves a mention too. And I just think there's a point in the quarter-final where they're ahead against England and they, they almost went 3-1 ahead as well. I distinctly remember thinking like, my God, you know, they, they could actually win this whole thing. Which you would never, you would never have thought uh, three to four weeks earlier, and the, the the impact that it had on that tournament, I think, is just so important because for sixty years before this, you know, the World Cup had really just been Europe and South America, you know, just swinging away at each other for world domination, and now and now here, all of a sudden, you had you know this amazing uh, team from you know sub-Saharan Africa reaching the quarterfinals, giving England the fright of their life in that quarterfinal. And you know they did outplay on the balance of play. Like probably should have gone on to the uh, to the semi-finals. I mean, that's I just think that's so important in the way. I, I think it probably did a lot to change the way people viewed African football and African footballers. Because if people didn't take African football seriously before Italia '90, I, I think they certainly started to do afterwards. Matthew, who have you chosen? Best story of it's a U90. Um, well, luckily for you, I haven't chosen Cameroon. Um, but um, just purely, not so much a story of the tournament, but a sort of a story inside the tournament. I've gone with the, the Maradona, uh, the semi-final with uh, Argentina playing Italy in Naples, purely because it is just that. It's almost a story in itself. You know, the fact that he'd gone to Naples in the in the early 80s and become this cult hero in that area and uh, and then suddenly finds himself back there playing against the team, you know, Valentina and the whole sub-story around it. And I know there's been a lot spoken about it and, and, and it's been featured in in various documentaries and films and what have you, but I just thought that was that was a sort of a story that you couldn't have you couldn't have written more perfectly before the tournament started. So um, not so much a you know a fairy tale like like Cameroon, which it was. I mean it was it, it captured all of us and myself included, but in terms of the, the sort of drama, to have um, to have a city's favourite son coming back and uh, or basically dividing a nation and essentially dividing a, a city right down the middle, probably more more than half and half if you go and by what you believe. But to, to call upon the people of, of Naples that had worshipped him for so long and to basically say, look, you know, these guys they don't like you, they hate you, uh, you know, back me instead. And uh, and and by all accounts, a lot, a lot of people did and. I mean, some didn't, but um, but to have that that power at the time, which he did, to be able to 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 call upon his people and and sort of rally them like that, and uh, it's uh, it, I just found that really interesting story and something that um, every World Cup needs, and and not every World Cup has had really since then, uh, and uh, we all obviously know how it ended, and uh, but but for for me, for drama and and, and that sort of uh, not so much fairy tale story, but a but a dramatic story it would be it would be Maradona's um, return to Naples in the semi-final finally Simon uh, which story uh, is the one that catches your eye the most um, well the, the two answers we've, you've just heard I think just really uh, underline why Italian IT is so uh, remembered by people because of these stories um, I mean Scalacci coming from nowhere to be top scorer was you know another great story from that World Cup but I'm, I'm once again, I've got to go with uh, with Mike really, with with Cameroon in particular, particularly Roger, Roger Miller, who whose individual you know um, 
reemergence from semi-retirement uh, on you know the island of reunion to you know the the, the world stage and scoring uh, the goals he scored uh, sort of embodied that 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 Cameroon you know journey um, so marvelously um, so yeah Cameroon and and Roger Miller together were for me were, were the story of the tournament. Well, if the Cameroon story was the odds-on favourite, then there must be a couple of each-way chances uh, to, to look at here, and probably Costa Rica's underdog story, uh, which is part of the country's folklore even today, would be a good choice. Uh, and what about the USA and their part-timers and college boys? A um, bit of a miracle, them being there in the first place. Uh, and although it wasn't, wasn't a, much expected of them at the tournament, they still had the pressure of hosting in four years time so they had to make some sort of impact at least and of course what about Ireland's first visit to the World Cup finals and their uh, great penalty shootout win against Romania and Genoa there are some strong contenders for our next two categories uh, firstly we'll go with biggest disappointments and it seems like we've narrowed it down to two Maradona and the Dutch Matthew have you chosen either of those I have and I, I almost feel like changing my answer after hearing uh Mike's sort of uh, eulogy to Maradona in this tournament. I almost feel uh, I've gone for the obvious answer without really giving it much thought. But um, I'll defend my choice for for Maradona. And and it's purely because, like everyone, I was absolutely blown away by his performance in Mexico with what he did with his, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say single-handedly winning Argentina the World Cup because he was in a a team with some, you know, he had a, a lot of quality around him. But his bursts of brilliance, individual skill and ability in Mexico were, were fantastic and, and there for all to see the goal against in England, the goal against semi-final, uh, the semi-final goal against Belgium. And I just felt that in this World Cup, that just wasn't there to be seen in, a, in all its glory. And I know, obviously now, I'm sort of on the other side after listening to, uh, to what Mike said about how he still sort of galvanised that Argentina team and took them, to, um, took them a lot further than they probably should have gone purely through his his ability and his ability alone but I just think from a spectator's point of view and from for all the hype and excitement that we were piling on him going into this tournament I don't think there was well there certainly wasn't the the, the burst of brilliance that we would look back on and um, uh, and remember so brilliantly like we'd, we'd done four years previously I mean yes we can we can defend him and put him on a pedestal for uh, for his his pragmatism and the way he um, the way he played and the way he was kicked and he but he still carried on and he and he got his team as far as he could and what he did in in Naples in the semi-final but from talking as I felt at the time the biggest disappointment for me as much as I was probably glad because like most people at the time we, I was probably quite bitter towards Maradona for what he'd done uh, four years previously and I was quite glad to see him sort of go out in the, with a whimper but um but with the benefit of hindsight I would say that it would be his overall tournament and his his individual performances really was the biggest disappointment for me. Simon, who have you come up with? Uh, who really didn't do it for you at Italia ninety? Um, I'm going for Marco van Basten. Um, you know he'd he'd been such a hero for the Dutch in the uh, their European Championship win two years earlier. He he just finishes the top scorer in Serie A with AC Milan, and um, despite you know being on Italian soil in the World Cup, he he didn't score a goal. He um he was sulking. He he fell out with with Bainhacker. There was this Amsterdam versus Rotterdam sort of rivalry, which which you know pe- took its toll on that on that Dutch camp and particularly that that dynamic between you know the the star striker and the coach. And 
who was you know massively to the, the detriment of a, such a talented Dutch team. So Van Basten is the man for me. And Mike, to round off, who have you chosen in this one? Uh, yes, Simon and I are mirroring a lot of each other's answers, but um, yeah, I, I just picked the whole um, uh, Dutch team uh, basically. I, yeah, they were, you know, going in European champions. Uh, you know, they had Rijkaard, um, Hullet, and Van Basten. You know, the, the kind of spine of that back-to-back European Cup-winning AC Milan team, and you know, Ronald Koeman, lots of other great players as well, and. Uh, yeah, they just didn't perform. Apart from what well, Howitt's goal um, against the Republic of Ireland, which is a, is a really, uh, really nicely worked goal. Uh, yeah, they just they just didn't turn up to the tournament, and their, their performance in uh, the second round against West Germany. I, I don't know what was going on with Frank Rijkaard, but that, that seemed to be the performance of a man who just did not want to be there at all. He's like, actively trying to get, you know, doing his very best to get sent off. Um, so uh, yeah, and, and Simon's alluded to the uh, the problems in the camp there, but uh, the quality of that squad, I mean, it, it should have been capable of um, of so much more, I think. And just as an alternative, I would mention the um, the USSR as well, and it would be the last time that we would see the Soviet Union um, at the World Cup. Um, Soviet Union would do at the end of end of uh, 1991 as an entity, and uh, yeah, they, they were they they'd been runners up in. 88 at the European Championship and they always seem to do really well at the European Championship but um, you know not so well at the World Cup and uh, they were very disappointing as well here I think um, going out in the first round the way they did In the biggest blunder section it's the flamboyant Colombian keeper who gets the nod from the bookies as being the favourite for this one Simon what would you say about who who made the biggest rick uh, in this tournament? Um, well, we all remember Higita for what happened with with Roger Miller. Um, I I've gone for Zenga. Um, I know we've we've already spoken about the, the the drama of that night in Naples, the semi-final, and to, to have gone 517 minutes without you know conceding a goal, and then to to make a hash of coming for a cross for a free kick and conceding a goal. You know, it was such a <laughs> And disastrously timed mistake by him. Um, it turned that semi-final against Italy. Um, so that, that I'm going for Zenga in the in the semi. Mike, uh, I went for uh, Vicini, uh, the Italian manager, bringing back Gianluca Vialli for the semi-final against Argentina. And, be, and before that, um, in in the group phases, you know, Vialli had had. Uh, Quite a disappointing start to the World Cup. Uh, he missed a penalty uh, against the USA. Um, he was then, you know, injured and um, seemingly looking like he was going to be unavailable for the rest of the tournament. And in, in the interim, Vicini found this front two combination of Scalacci and Roberto Baggio that got that got it all the way to the semi-finals. And I, I just, yeah, it's, I can't understand why um, Vicini broke that up. And left Baggio on the bench for this um, semi-final. Obviously, Viali was a huge um, figure in that Italian squad. He was uh, probably the, the highest-profile player in that squad going into that tournament. But um, yeah, it's just on the night. It was a decision that that didn't really work out, and um, you know, Viali was essentially substituted. Um, and when they did eventually bring on Roberto Baggio, they took off uh, Giuseppe Giannini, which. Um, 
there's a nice line in um all played out pete davis's book that you know it, it gutted the heart of the um italian midfield and it was uh, it just felt like one bad decision on top of another and that italy lost control with a, a semi-final really that that they they really should have won so um yeah that would be my um, biggest blunder the um the breaking up of uh the Scalacci and Baggio partnership and uh, bringing back Viali for that semi-final. Matthew, who have you chosen for this section? Yeah, well, I did go for the predictable. I did go for Aguita because, well, just because it was such a, I mean, it was on the cards, wasn't it? I mean, anyone watching that World Cup, it was like we knew that it was going to happen at some point. He was almost begging to have, to be dispossessed of a ball. I mean, in the days of the back pass rule, you know, you could pick it up and you could boot it down the pitch or you could roll it out. You know, your keeper was... <laughs> basically untouchable so to to sort of try and the tricks that he, he liked to do I mean it was only a matter of time before he got dispossessed in it for him obviously it ended in a, a calamitous uh, goal um, from Roger Miller so yeah a, a tap in really for that decision but it was run close I, I was considering Pompidou's mistake in the uh, <clears throat> the opening game against Cameroon I mean a hell of a shock and uh, for anyone that remembers it but I mean what was probably more of a shock was how that that ball actually ended up in the net because I mean I don't know how it squirmed under the the keeper the World Cup winning keeper from four years before but um, maybe that wasn't as, as um, high profile as a geezer so I'll, for that reason I'll I'll give it to the uh, curly haired keeper. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that we've got lots of uh, votes. Uh, in in this section for Zenga's mistake in the semi-final and of course Aguita's uh, blunder mm-hmm. against Cameroon uh, and you've mentioned Neri Pompidou there Matthew um, but what's interesting is that none of those that missed in the penalty shootouts made anybody's nominations which I think is strange um, a couple of quick ones here where do we begin in the best and worst haircut categories uh, we've got Jonathan O'Brien again eating the dyed dreadlocks of Cyril Makanaki for the best haircut and the awful permed mullet of Austria's Manfred Lintzmeyer for the worst haircut um, Ash Rose plumped for the lovely Carlos Valderrama and his, his do as the best although I'm not sure if you could also put that in the worst category um, quickly guys who are you naming and shaming in the haircut stakes Mike I'll start with you uh, well I <laughs> I will uh, just sort of preface this by saying that you know I'm three months almost into lockdown now and I haven't cut my hair in that time. So uh, my own haircut at the moment um, is, is nothing to shout about at all. So uh, yeah, I feel, I feel a bit uh, harsh maybe criticising anyone else's uh, haircut, particularly from uh, from 30 years ago. But um, for the worst, I picked uh, Vigaz Kidia too in the, uh, the Soviet uh, Union defender. And this tournament, I, I saw someone once describe Italian 90 as a smorgasbord of mullets. <laughs> and um, there, are, you know, there are a lot of bad mullets in this competition. But, um, yeah, uh, Kidia Tuin seemed to have, like, a, a mullet, the mullet bit of the back. But then um, he tried to do, like, the Bobby Charlton, um, you know, thing going on over the top, which is not really, um, not really a combination um, that really worked for him. And in the best, uh, yeah, I, I went for... Um, Valderrama um, it, you know obviously makes him stand out on the pitch and you know someone who does lots of minute by minutes and things you know that's always always very helpful like you know when you're trying to cover a game but it was you know it was a haircut sat on top of uh, a really fantastic player as well he's probably another uh, you know attacking midfielder who, who sort of on the quiet had a very um, very influential World Cup you know huge influential figure in Colombian football and you know it coming to prominence in the 90s and also in the establishment of um 
major league soccer in the in the early years as well. So um, yeah, I, w- I would go for uh, Carlos Valderrama as the best. Matthew, why don't you regale us with your uh, long and distinguished hairstyle and expertise? Uh, well, I'm a bit like the others, really. I mean, I uh, yeah, mine's <clears throat> I'm 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 rocking the. An Ian Wone at the minute, shall we say, if we're going to keep it nice, you know, <laughs> <laughs> very floppy, and I've tried to cut it around the sides and the back, so I've gone very, uh, very mid nineties. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. But in terms of this, I've got two name, two names written down on my piece of paper. You know, whether you can choose which one's the worst, which one's the best, I'm not sure. I think it's a, a flip of a coin. I've got Carlos Valderrama and I've got Chris Waddle. Now, sort of looking at them, I'm not sure which you could say best and worst. I think. I think I've gone with Valderrama as the best, purely because it was again an era where I mean these days you're sort of used to World Cups coming round and, and seeing and, and we're so used to seeing players from all over the world sporting these incredible looks and dyed hair and you know the sort of Pogba style of you know red or blue or Mohicans or Balotelli and you know it's not such a big deal now. But I mean the World Cup then in 1990 when it came round to see a player that looked like this was just such a shock to the system for a you know a sort of youngish teenage football fan to you know it was just a real something out of the blue so I mean that, that was the one that I chose as as, as best uh, which you could probably say is worse uh, and then for worse I have chosen Chris Waddle which is probably a little bit harsh because he's one of those haircuts that we can all refer to as the Chris Waddle um, and, and, and the way things are going at the minute maybe we, there's probably a few people sporting this kind of hairstyle but I just felt that for the sort of stylish and uh, you know such a culture player that Waddle was and maybe underestimated at times. Um, he just didn't rock the look. But um, in terms of maybe looking back, maybe that was his. That maybe that was his niche. Maybe the, the fact that we all know what he looked like with that, the the spiky hair style on top, and then the flowing mane behind. Maybe that was his thing. Maybe he was having the last laugh that we we all can refer to the Chris Waddle haircut. But I just remember at the time thinking he just looked awkward and, and stupid and, and a bit like the sort of geeky guy at school that didn't really know what to do with his hair and uh, got stuck in the middle but um, you know with, maybe with hindsight I'll uh, give him the benefit of the doubt but yeah Valderrama best what a worst on my gets my vote uh, and Simon what about you and also did you sport any of these haircuts in the early 90s um, no I was uh, pretty sensible really a bit of a floppy fringe but uh, but no um, I mean what, what, what Matthew said there really sort of resonates the, the idea of sort of the shock of the new the, the exotic appeal of these haircuts Makinaki for me was just wow you know when I saw that um, but I'm going to go looking back with, with Chris Waddle because we all like a, a redemption story and of course he, he did shave the mullet um, before the semi-final uh, which you know to have two haircuts in one World Cup is pretty good going and the fact that he you know £10,000 went to charity to um, uh, Newcastle Hospital I think a cancer unit um is a, is a bigger sort of tick in the box in his in his favour. So Waddle for, for 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 the journey he went on at that World Cup with his hair. Now, best merchandise. This is a tricky category, uh, just because of the sheer volume of merch that was produced and dedicated to Italian ninety. Uh, Rich Nelson has chosen the mini Coca Cola footballs that I think everyone between the ages of six and sixteen had back in nineteen ninety. Ash Rose nominates not only the Matchbox cars emblazoned with Chow and the Italia 90 logos, but the full-sized real thing, uh, a Fiat Panda with, wait for it, a whole 0.8-litre engine, which probably gave you less speed than Maradona in a Naples nightclub. 
well, Pete Davis, who spent the entire tournament in Italy, remembers the Grana Padano cheese women, uh, Amazons in blazing sunburst yellow. Which pieces of memorabilia and or tat do you three remember most fondly? Matthew. Well, I think I said my original answer, anything with chow on it, because I just loved that. I like we all probably do. I love that that mascot. I love that design. I mean, it was just, again, so striking and, and memorable for any somebody of that age, you know, dying for the World Cup to start and to see that that logo start appearing on things. You just you just wanted anything with that on. And I think I probably did have anything with that on. Um I remember my mum had been to Italy a couple of years before the World Cup and she came back with all these bits and pieces, you know, tap that you'd probably call it now. But I mean, to me, it was just absolute heaven. But, um, yeah, I'm going to say the, I'm going to say the football, the Coca-Cola football, just because of the, the impact they had on people. I mean, they're probably responsible for about 70% of landfill in mm-hmm. uh, this, con- this country alone now, if you think about it. I mean, think how many people had them and, I assume they're still kicking around somewhere. I, did, I, I bet if you did a quick search on eBay, they're probably kick, kicking around, and you probably get them. They're probably about a hundred quid now for a, a, a good condition one. But um, yeah, I'd, I would say the uh, Coca-Cola football. I mean, I've got little pennants and a couple of bottle openers and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, we had many hours playing in streets and gardens and, and school playgrounds with the Coca-Cola football. I mean, a magnificent piece of marketing from Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, using the two probably the biggest brands in the world at the time the the uh, chow logo and the coca-cola logo so no wonder that every kid wanted one and uh yeah that's so an easy another tap in really but um that's the one i'm going to go for and simon what have you chosen as your favorite bit of merchandise well i'm still kicking myself really because um we we had a, we had a family camping holiday in italy in 1989 and i remember seeing all of these you know chow bits and pieces uh the key rings and so on and being very excited but not actually buying any of them um so i've got to go with my uh my, my seven inch copy of new orders world emotion which i do still have and uh, which is sadly my only bit of uh remaining sort of memorabilia from from 1990s i'm going with that and mike what have you chosen uh, i've gone for the the orbis italia 90 um which if uh, if people don't know what that is it's like it's almost like a, a deluxe panini album um in that you could uh fill it up with their uh, stickers of all the teams and you know the players and their badges and things like that but also when you bought the additions every week to fill up the folder that they gave you it came with their uh, breakdowns of you know greatest games in world cup history greatest goals greatest players and i was uh, 12 years old at the time of Italian 90s so I was still learning about and you know delving back into World Cup history to you know find out more about it and this is before the internet and everything like that before you had those um those kind of to help you so I've, I've gone on to um you know write a lot about football and international football in particular and the World Cup and I think my interest in it was really sparked by uh, the Orbis Italia 90 to the point where I, I tried to do uh, a European Championship equivalent for my A-level media studies project uh, six years later which was um, obviously from an 18 year old nothing like, nothing like the same quality uh, at all but um, yeah I've got a very fond memory of that and it's it's never been uh, never, I don't think it was ever repeated either there, there wasn't anything similar for the uh, uh, USA World Cup four years later I, well, I don't think there's been one since um, so it's just a yeah, brilliant one off and um, if I could just mention one other thing as well actually it's not merchandise per se but it, it's it's something that is very 
um, you know, connected to that World Cup and came out shortly after it. And that would be all played out uh, by Pete Davis. And I just would like to sort of pay a little tribute to that. It's, you know, Italian 90s and, a, and you know, an amazing football tournament that changed so much about the game and about a lot of players' lives. But uh, to have it documented um, as brilliantly as that and, uh, and for that book to have that association to that tournament. Um, and if you, I think if you look around... You know the the modern world of football writing. When I look around it, you know, in uh, you know magazines and podcasts, and you know where, where even people talk about football, I can see and feel that book everywhere. Really, I mean the the impact of it on um, modern football culture is uh, very profound. And I think we're very lucky with Italia ninety that one we got a very memorable tournament, but also that it was you know documented that well. Our final award is for the, our favourite moment of Italia 90. Uh, we're looking for those iconic moments that have really defined the competition for the last 30 years. I think there are plenty of those. Um, I'm going to play my hand early on this one and say Benjamin Massing and his teammates taking three attempts to wipe out Claudio Canigia in the opening game. Um, it was simultaneously savage and beautiful. Uh, it helped to shake our expectations of what Italia 90 was going to be as well as being bloody hilarious to boot, seeing Kanija spinning through the air and then crumpled in a heap after Massing's crude intervention. Simon, beat that. Well, it's very hard to beat that. Um, the moment I celebrated the most at the time was Platt's goal against uh, Belgium. But I think when I look back, it's, it, it's the opening game. And maybe even waiting for the opening game, just that day at school and just that sense of excitement and anticipation that... The World Cup was about to start, and it did start, and you were looking at the San Siro, and it was, it was, you know, majestic, and you had all this drama unfolding. So that that first day, maybe, not just for the, you know, the the upset and the the excitement and the the, the drama of, of Cameroon's win, but just the, the sense of what was going to come, and you know, the beginning of a World Cup summer. There's, you know, when you were boy and that's happening, it's it's just such a lovely feeling. Mike, what was your moment of Italia 90? Well, I've, I mean, it's already been mentioned, but I've gone for uh, Roger Miller robbing Higita and then putting the the, the ball in the net. Um, what I love about that moment is that it brings together two of the really most memorable, iconic characters of that World Cup, I think, and two players that I was, I was completely unaware of, uh, really, before the tournament, and it's the you know, eight-year-old Miller robbing the, I think Higita was 22, then it's, it's almost like when, you, you know, when your dad takes the ball off you in the back garden and then, you know, runs to the other end of the garden and scores. And it's, uh, there's a great photo of it actually where uh, it's from behind the goal when uh, Miller has um, robbed Higita and running away and Higita's got this grimace on his face as he's uh, trying to get back to him. And uh, I love it because it, it, it kind of represents something I think the World Cup has lost a little bit in, in the um, you know the players then you know in the pre-internet age came out of nowhere more in tournaments and uh, and and just surprised you like yeah I mean there's a lot more kind of knowledge of um, global football now or what's going on in other leagues and other countries but uh, yeah yeah I just I love that moment. I just, I actually feel really sorry for Higita uh, in that moment. It's a very uh, horrible blunder that contributed to knocking his team out of the World Cup. But if you, you know, if you look at the way 
football is played now and you know there, there is this demand on goalkeepers these days to be able to to use their feet and play out from the back um you know he, he was definitely ahead of the curve in, in in being someone that was uh trying to do that e- even though it obviously it went uh, horribly wrong for him but um yeah that would be my moment that that um that meeting of those two uh those two memorable players from Italia 90 and Matthew which moment from the competition makes you feel and fuzzy well, I feel like I've written my notes out and just handed them to Simon, and he's read them out for me. I mean, I went with, I went with that that game as a whole, that opening game, the Cameroon Argentina at the San Siro, purely because of what it was all about. It was the anticipation, the wait, the four week, four year wait for the World Cup to begin after the one I really remember. That was my first, the Mexico '86, the build up to it. Um, I think the, it was a Friday. If I remember rightly, it was a sort of a tea time start with the ceremony and everything. And Elton Wells beyond the gantry and uh, the, the San Siro, the opening ceremony, and, and then just the game that took place. You know, the first game of the World Cup, and it was it was absolute. Well, I wouldn't say pandemonium, but I mean, quite often World Cup opening games are seen as quite dull affairs. But I mean, this one had everything. You had an, a Cameroon team that were basically up for doing anything, and a kit that was just brilliant on the eye for a young sort of young football fan obsessed with things like that. Um, you had a huge shock. You, the stadium was like something you'd never seen before. It was like a spaceship that had come and landed. It was just, uh, it was just everything you wanted from um, the start of a World Cup. And then, it, and obviously, we know that it went on and it, it began what four weeks of absolute magic for um, for all of us that, that, that loved it and still talk about it thirty years on. So it's a bit of a, a cop out in terms of moment, but I mean that game as a whole and everything that went with it would be my moment of the. Uh, of the competition just purely because we're still talking about it now and we still know and can remember where we were and, and everything that, that went on well we'll talk off with a few of Pete Davis's for favorite personal memories um of course he was he's he was there uh, in Italy at the time and and as Mike said he's gone on to inspire many of us um with uh, his book all played out uh, he remembers the atmosphere around the stadium in Turin before the Argentina Brazil game being being such a joy Maradona's weird and mad press conferences with Carlos Menem, the the then president of Argentina, uh, the hallucinogenic glare of the sun in Naples, and just sitting on the beach south of Naples with a few of the England players before the Cameroon game, um, a moment of peace in the sunshine outside of the bubble for just that short while, and he remembers the courtesy of the Italians who who were great hosts throughout the entire tournament. Um, it makes you wish you'd been there too, eh? Lucky old Pete. As I said in our last episode, we've dispensed with the trivia and the listeners' questions for these final two episodes. So I'll do the honours and thank my guests Matthew Christ, Simon Hart and Mike Gibbons for being with us today and indeed at various points throughout the series. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I hope you've enjoyed coming on the podcast. Absolutely. It's been a joy to remember it all again. 30 years ago, it seems like yesterday. Um, Well, let's get plugging your Twitter or anything else you've got to go on. Uh, Mike, I'll come to you first. Uh, yep, yeah, I'm at Mike W Gibbons um, on Twitter, so you can uh, yeah you can find me on there, and uh, you know I'll be putting up links to the, uh, various things I'm writing about and have coming up. Uh, yeah, so that's me. Brilliant, Matthew. Yeah, on Twitter at Matthew J Christ, and it's mostly retro stuff, uh, the odd the odd bit of stuff, but uh, yeah, again, read about how it used to be in the old days. Mm-hmm. And finally, Simon, we're going to see you again in the final, but um, go ahead and plug away. 
Yeah, I'm at uh, Simon22PH and I'll be there sh- shamelessly plugging my Italian IT book. Well, fantastic. I can't recommend, recommend that highly enough, that's for sure. Um, as you probably know, we are at VentureR90 on Twitter and Instagram and the series is available to listen to on all the major podcast hosts. Uh, subscribe and share uh, and leave a nice review too, please. Uh, that would be hugely appreciated. So, with both teams giving us a final Mexican wave on the podium, we say goodbye and arrivederci to England and Italy with smiles all round, but plenty of what-ifs too, no doubt. England especially had done themselves proud, but Italy knew they should have been in Rome one last time instead of out on the Puglian coast. We'll be back tomorrow for the final fling to see if West Germany can finish Italia 90 as ominously as they started. Argentina may have been depleted, but they relished a scrap and wouldn't relinquish their title as world champions without fighting tooth and nail for it. Ciao! Not